What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It's a lot going on. My rant today over on HartmanReport.com is all about, well, it's addressed, you know, dear Joe Manchin, you want American business to invest in West Virginia, raise their corporate income tax rate. And to that topic, Charles Sowers on the line with us. He's the libertarian economist, the president of the Market Institute, the author of the book Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. And Charles Sauer, it's spelled S-A-U-E-R, at Charles Sauer is his Twitter handle. Charles, welcome back. So what's not to love about a corporate tax rate that encourages investments and higher wages? What am I missing here? Well, you're missing all of the actual economics that go into the corporate tax rate. First and foremost, it's a tax on labor. This is comes out of the pockets of labor. The best estimates put it at 20%, and that's from the Tax Policy Center. The Congressional Budget Office says it's 25%, and Larry Kotlikoff says it's likely 100% of corporate taxes come from the pockets of labor. And that means that you're not like just hurting the big businesses here. What you're doing is hurting labor. You're hurting job creation. You're hurting wages and everything else that goes with it. So the right corporate tax rate is likely 0%. Now, if you want to tax the big bad guys, we can talk about it. But through the corporate tax rate is not the way to do that. So, Charles, is your market institute, is your business, uh, if, if you don't mind uh, talking about it, is it for profit or not for profit? The Market Institute is a 501c4 nonprofit, but I also have an LLC, which is a flow through. Okay, so you have a small company. I have a small company, which is this show and my book writing. And what do you do at the end of the year to keep from showing a profit? Or what? I don't want to personalize this. That's not fair to you. What, <laughs> you know, you and I both run small businesses. Don't yes. we both know that at the end of the year that, the, you know, December is the boom time for car dealers and, you know, who are selling or leasing vehicles to businesses for copy salespeople, for computer salespeople, for office furniture. And the reason why is because small businesses all across America are saying, you know, hey, I've got uh, 10,000 bucks left over in the checking account at the end of the year here and I don't want to have to pay income taxes on it. So I'm going to I'm going to buy a new computer or I'm going to invest in something. I mean, that's 
how it works. And it works with big business the same way. If you don't want to show a profit, you invest in R&D. Why is it that during the time when we had a top corporate income tax rate of 50%, which was from the 1940s until the 1980s, we had the time of greatest prosperity, greatest corporate growth, and greatest growth in wages in the United States. And then Reagan dropped it down to 35%, and it stood there at 35% until just five years ago, and or four years ago, or maybe three years ago, and that 35%, you know, encouraged at least some, you know, I'll give you that there's a million loopholes that need to be closed, but that, you know, the corporate tax is the pressure on a corporation to not end up with huge surpluses of cash or not simply shovel that money out as dividends or give it to their CEOs. I think that I disagree with almost everything you said. First off, inflation adjusted, those numbers are different. But if we look at the world and we look at the world tax rates, what Reagan did in the 80s was create a tax revolution. And not only did that allow us to have higher growth and higher job creation, but the rest of the world followed suit because capital started flowing into the U.S. And that's the goal is you want the capital from investors to flow in so that you have more factory creation. You have more capital to create more labor. And this isn't uh, trickle-down economics. It's just a world demand rate. As we have a world economy, money can move from country to country faster. So right now, when Reagan lowered that, we had the low, a low tax rate. But the rest of the world followed and beat us. Asia has a lower tax rate. Europe has a ta- lower tax rate. And now what we did when what President Trump did, and I haven't been on for a while because you and I would have agreed too much when talking about President Trump. But the fact is, is President Trump's tax cut made us more competitive around the world. We had tax rates that were actually the same as the OECD. If we go so, up to 28 percent, now we're multiple higher than in the OECD. That's where an investor is going to go. Okay, so I'm looking at Andrew Ross Sorkin's, you know, with the New York Times. He does this deal book newsletter every day, and it's a column in the New York Times, and his and I subscribe to it. And uh, apropos of this, has taxes levied on corporate profits as a share of GDP. And back in 1960, the U.S., Japan, the U.S. and Japan were both at around 4%, and the OECD average was around 2%, and uh, Germany was around 1.5%. Fast forward to today, and the U.S. is, the taxes levied on corporate profits as a share of gross domestic product is 1% in the U.S. In Germany, it's 2%. In Britain, it's almost 3%. The OECD average is 3.5%. Mexico is 3.5%. Canada is around 3.8%. And Japan is 4.5%. We have the lowest collection of taxes as a share of GDP. And yet all those countries are doing just fine, no, thank no, you no. very you much. No, no, you can't mess up those words. Levied versus collected is a different term. And that's the whole point, is when the Reagan cut the corporate income tax, the corporate tax rate, he actually changed it so that there were less write-offs. There was more money that was coming in because it was easier to file. It was easier to follow, but there was less business lunches deducted, less travel deducted. There was less things that you could deduct, which made it a more efficient, effective tax code that didn't incentivize corporate bigwigs spending money on expensive lunches versus paying their labor more. 
Well, you know, I, I don't know that that's what happened during Reagan. I'll take your word for it. It's certainly what happened in 67 when LBJ lowered the top personal income tax rate from 91% down to 73% or 74% and closed so many loopholes that it actually increased collections. But my argument again is that as long as corporations are facing, you know, if they, if they just keep the money or shovel it as dividends to their shareholders, which are taxable, or as money to their CEOs, which after the first million or two million, I forget which it is in tax code now, is taxable. Instead of doing that, they reinvest in R&D, in machinery, in expansion, in all those things. They do that. I mean, what creates the pressure for companies to do that, and certainly did during the 50 years when our top tax rate was at 50% from the 40s to the 80s, that's a good thing. That builds America. Well, what you're saying is debatable, but we're at the kind of uh, kind of a lower level. If we go to a higher level, we actually need to talk about the investment coming into the U.S. and where investors take their money. And because the more capital we have, the more R&D happens, the more building of infrastructure happens. And if we have the higher tax rates, that money, that base capital goes someplace else. So yeah, we can argue your points, but that's a second tier issue compared but, to where the no, original no, I, money is, comes from. But but you know, you're arguing we need money from other countries to come into the United States. I'm you know that's not even part of my equation. I'm saying we want to alter the behavior of American investors. corporations. Sorry, go ahead. Or money from U.S. investors. It doesn't have to come from abroad. U.S. investors' money is fungible as well. Okay. Charles Sauer with the Market Institute. Uh, whoop, let me get my one sheet up here. Here, yeah. Uh, marketinstitute.org and Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, on Twitter. Charles, thanks for dropping by today. It's always nice talking with you. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? The Honorable Tom Harmon, Prophet, Truth, Democracy, Justice, and the American Way. Good day to you, sir. I just Thank wanted, you. when we were told that corporation are people, you know, that's, yeah. that was the point that, yeah, so they need to pay tax. So the, the, the bottom line is the, the corporation are not paying their fair share of taxes. And it's something that the Biden administration really have to look into because it's not paying taxes. It, you know, it, it, it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect the government. It's going to affect everybody. So when you have corporations are cheating to not to pay taxes so they can pay more dividends to their investors, that's not fair. You know, people are taxed. Anybody need to tax grow right now is the middle class. You know, and Biden really have to address this issue because it's something that's not being fairly looked at at all, even on during Trump administration, they got taxed everywhere. You know, they were making billions, yeah. and they can afford it. They can afford it. They have money. They can afford it. They made a billion, a billion of dollars. And you got like 80% of the wealth owned by 400 families. Tax them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's kind of a somewhat different issue, Omar, than the corporate tax. And, you know, the argument that I'm making is, is pretty straightforward, that businesses don't like to pay taxes. And, you know, I mean, nobody likes to pay taxes. And businesses in particular don't like to pay taxes. So if you don't like to pay taxes, how do you get out of paying taxes? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Don't show a profit or reduce your profit. I mean, the, the corporate tax is actually progressive. So the higher your profit, the more your tax is. So it's, it's straightforward stuff. 
as I said, you know, every small business person in America knows this. It's, it, it's just the average person doesn't. The average person thinks that, you know, when you say, oh, the corporate tax rate is, income tax rate is going up, people think, oh my God, corporations are going to be hit with like some kind of surcharge or something. And that's not actually how it works. If a corporation is doing $100 billion worth of business and showing a billion dollars in profit, they're only taxed on that billion dollars in profit. And there are all kinds of ways that they can cut that billion dollar profit down to zero. The main one being building new factories, paying their workers better, developing new products, doing R&D. All these things are 100% tax deductible. And, and some of them, in fact, even have tax benefits that echo into the future, you know, with the, the opportunity for depreciation. So I realize, you know, it, it can sound kind of wonky, but it's really, really very simple. If you want businesses to invest in, in, in their own business, to grow their own business, rather than simply just suck it dry, which has been increasingly the business model since the changes of the Reagan era, if you want that business to grow, if you want that business to pour its money back into the business rather than like, you know, the Walton family taking $100 billion out of Walmart, although Walmart has done a pretty good job of reinvesting, but still, if you want your business to grow, the, the, the straightforward, simple way to do it is to take the money that you have left over at the end of the year, the, the so-called profit, and put that profit back into the company. And this is, I mean, this is what businesses have been doing forever. And the, and the corporate income tax, which started in the, in the 19 teens, either 1913 or 1918, I forget which, I think it was 13. Um, that corporate income tax has been one of the biggest pressures on companies to reinvest, in my humble opinion. I'm just gonna tighten up this rant a little and touch a few other topics and, and then I'll pick up the phone calls. So let me just let me just lay this out in in a fairly you know straightforward fashion, and you know make my argument I, again. I mean I sort of made it with Charles, but and then I'll pick up your phone calls on this. There's also a few other things in the news that I want to get to too. That you know, we're hearing from Anne Frank's stepsister about Donald Trump, for example. Well, I'll get to those things in a minute. But you know most Americans have never run a business. The number of people in this country who are entrepreneurs who have started businesses is, is fairly small. I mean, it's, it's substantial compared to, to countries that don't allow that sort of thing. But, but you know, it's, it's not a lot of people. So most people, never having run a business, don't understand how the corporate income tax works. The corporate income tax is very straightforward. At the end of the year, you say, okay, we, uh, this year we brought in, you know, $100,000 in revenue. And we had... $70,000 in expenses that, you know, that we paid to salaries or to expenses or what, you know, that are all tax deductible. And so what's left over, and it's, it's basically for a small business, it's literally what's left over in your checking account at the end of the year. We're sitting here with $30,000 sitting in the checking account and we don't want to pay taxes on it. So what do we do? We buy a new computer or we uh, lease a vehicle. You know, we raise our expenses in a way, or we invest in the company, or we develop a new product, or we hire a marketing firm and we start doing advertising or promotion. These are all things that are entirely tax deductible. What's going on right now with this super low tax rate is that businesses are engaged in activity that is taxable. In other words, shoveling money to their CEOs, there's a tax consequence to that to companies. 
over a, you know after after the first million, as I recall, and paying dividends. The, you know that's the, this is taxable activity as well. But because the tax rate is so low, most of the much of the profits that companies, big in particular, big companies have, if they can't stash it over sh- overseas offshore, which is something that the Biden administration is talking about, you know, tightening up that loophole so they can't get away with that anymore. But if they can't do that, what they do is they they just take that because it's a very low tax rate. Hey, you know, we'll we'll pay the five or ten or fifteen percent, you know, with a twenty one percent top tax rate right now. Um, the, the effective rate it drops dramatically because of all the loopholes and things. So yeah, we'll pay a little bit of tax on that money, but you know, it'll it'll allow us to take the money out of the business. You raise that corporate tax rate up to say 50% where it was from the 1940s to the 1980s, or even 35% where Reagan said it and it stayed until just a few years ago. You raise it up into that range, 35 to 50%, and at that point companies say at the end of the year, you know, uh, if we just shovel all this money out as dividends and CEO pay, we're gonna have to pay a fairly big tax bill. We don't wanna do that. So let's instead, you know, uh, support the local little league and, and build parks around our, our, our factory or our warehouse or our business to, to benefit the local community as tax deductible. Or let's invest in advertising or marketing or let's develop a new product. Joe Manchin is going through this whole thing about how, uh, you know, I'm not going to support increasing corporate taxes beyond 25%. And, you know, I get that there's politics here and I get that West Virginia is kind of a well, not kind of, it's a very red state, and he's got to deal with, he's got to answer to the people who put him in Congress. You know, I get all that. This is not any kind of personal knock on Joe Manchin. But the point is that the economics of this, if you actually want businesses to invest in West Virginia, if you want businesses that are currently in West Virginia to grow their businesses and hire new people, then raise the corporate taxes. It's very, very straightforward. A couple other things I wanted to share with you that I think are um, pretty shocking. First of all, the Biden administration is taking action on guns. And if you'd like to get into a rant or a debate about guns, feel free. The Justice Department says that they're going to crack down on ghost guns. These are the ones made from kits assembled at home. They have no serial numbers. They're going to crack down on braces that turn pistols into shotguns effectively or short-barreled rifles. They're going to offer, the Justice Department is going to offer model red flag legislation to the states. So if Congress won't pass a law, you know, that that gives, when the red flag goes up, somebody is convicted or even charged with, you know, a restraining order is issued against somebody for domestic violence. That, That should be a red flag that that person shouldn't have a gun. So they're going to offer that. They're, they're ordering five different federal agencies to direct vital support to community violence intervention programs as quickly as possible. And he's putting forward David Chipman, an old ATF agent, as the head of the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And Chipman has spent the last year or so as an advisor to Americans for Responsible Solutions, which is Gabby Gifford's gun control group. So I think that, you know, we're moving in a really good direction. And in fact, Mr. Garland, the, uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general at the moment, is saying, you know, we at the Justice Department are going to be doing something about this as well. So the Biden administration to me seems to be firing on all cylinders. The problem right now is in the Senate. And because Republicans have said they're not going to have anything to do with any negotiations, including the jobs plan, now you've got Democratic senators negotiating with each other, for better or for worse. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. 
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is toward the very end, and it's a chapter titled Transforming Culture Through Politics. Many think it's just to fund tax cuts and subsidies for the rich, that the multimillionaire CEOs who've taken over almost all senior posts in government are just pigs at the trough. And this is a spectacular but ordinary form of self-serving corruption. It all seems so plausible, and there's even a grain of truth to it. But juicy deals for right-wing government insiders and their friends are just a byproduct of the real and deeper war against democracy. The neoconservatives are perf perfectly happy for us to think that they're just opportunists skirting the edges of legality and morality. But this is far more dangerous than simple government corruption. Indeed, the neoconservatives claim to be anti-government. As a leading spokesman for the neocon agenda, Grover Norquist told National Public Radio's Mara Liason in a May 25th, 2001 morning edition interview, quote, I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub, end quote. Without a larger view, the issues of domestic spending, oil, neoconservative power plays in both major parties, the loss of liberties, anti-government rhetoric and war in the Middle East all seem like separate and unconnected events. They're not. The new conservatives who've seized the Republican Party and who, through the Democratic Leadership Council, are nipping at the heels of the Democratic Party, are not our parents' conservatives. Historic conservatives like Barry Goldwater, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower would be appalled, although their philosophical roots go back to Alexander Hamilton, who openly argued during the Constitutional Convention that royalty was the best form of government. The neocons have always been kept to the fringe. Indeed, the Reagan-Bush revolution flew in the face of traditional conservative ideals, as John Stockwell notes in his book, The Praetorian Guard, The U.S. Role in the New World Order, 
Reagan Bush were proud of their contempt for their concerns of environmentalists, with Reagan once saying, if you've seen one redwood, you've seen them all. Their Department of the Interior under James Watt sold off minerals and forests to campaign contributors at fire sale prices, and their EPA in many cases moved from prosecuting corporate polluters to legitimizing and protecting them under the guise of regulation. Although James Madison wrote in 1792 that an important role of government was to promote a strong middle class, quote, by the silent operation of the laws, which, without violating the rights of property, reduce extreme wealth toward a state of mediocrity and raise extreme indigence toward a state of comfort, end of quote from James Madison. That was not a sentiment shared by those in the Reagan-Bush revolution. Instead, Reagan raised taxes on the middle class and working people while cutting taxes by more than 60% for the most wealthy in America. At the same time, he bragged that he'd eliminated more than 1,000 programs for poor people and even proposed that poor school children should be content with ketchup as their daily vegetable. At the same time, the Reagan-Bush administration and later the George W. Bush administration worked hard to roll back the very individual liberties that America's founders had fought and died for. Dwight Eisenhower left office warning Americans about the dangers of the concentration of power resulting from corporations getting into bed with the military. But the Reagan-Bush and W. Bush administrations openly embraced these corporate powers, inviting them into the halls of governance and hungrily sucking at the teat of their campaign contributions. In the past, those promoting what is now called the new conservative agenda went by different names. The founders of America knew that for 6,000 years, civilized human beings had been ruled by one of three groups, kings, theocrats, or feudal lords. Kings held power by virtue of the threat of violence and continual warfare. Theocrats and popes held power by the people's fear of a god or gods, and feudal lords by wealth and the power that comes from throwing average people into poverty. The new idea of our founders in 1776 was to throw off all three of these historic tyrannies and replace them with a fourth way, the people being ruled by themselves, a government that derived its legitimacy and continuing existence solely from the approval of its citizens. Government of, by, and for we the people, they called it, a constitutional Republican democracy. What we are seeing now in the conservative agenda is nothing less than an attempt to overthrow Republican democracy and replace it with a worldwide feudal state. The last time this happened, the feudalists took over a monarchy in then North America. In December 1600, Queen Elizabeth I chartered the East India Company, ultimately leading to a corporate takeover of the Americas for the colonists that ended with the Boston Tea Party and three years later, the American Revolution. The corporate state partnership of the East India Company in the UK went on to then to conquer India, but eventually disintegrated as the British Empire faded and the British government, along with most of Western Europe, embraced somewhat more Jeffersonian forms of democracy. Conservatism raised its head again in the 20th century, revived by Franco, Hitler, and Mussolini. The Italian dictator even used the word corporatism to describe it, and then later renamed it as fascism, a word defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as, quote, a system of government that exercises a dictatorship of the extreme right, typically through the merging of state and business leadership together with belligerent nationalism. The book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Tom Harbin here with you. A lot going on in the world, and, you know, let's talk about it. <laughs> what a remarkable day, huh? Herb in uh, Pontiac, Michigan. Hey, Herb, what's up? 
Hi. You're uh, sorry there. He doesn't understand economics. You're spot on. I've been... I had a distribution business. I ran a 7-Eleven for almost 20 years. And they don't seem to understand that the consumer is the job creator. The more money people have in their pockets, the more they buy, the more demand. And so people have got to get stuff. And so they create more capacity, more jobs. And what does that have to do with the corporate income tax rate? Well, you're right on with the corporate income tax rate because when it is higher, they're going to reinvest. Because right now we have CEOs that are a bunch of Scrooge McDucks. All they do is hoard the money. You've got to circulate the money. The money has got to come back to the people through good wages so the people can go out and buy the products they want to sell. Everybody right, and good down- wages are, are 100% tax deductible. So let me just do a reality check with you, Herb. You've been a, a small business owner for several decades. At the end of the year, if you're operating on a calendar year for your business, which most small businesses do, at the end of the year or at the end of your fiscal year, as the case may be, do you find yourself looking at how much money you've got left over and thinking, okay, I don't want to pay taxes on that, so I'm going to put that money back into my business. I'm going to buy some new equipment, or I'm going to, I'm going to give my employees a raise, or I'm going to hire a new person. I put my money back into my employees throughout the year because the happier the employees are, the happier the customers are, and more business comes through that way. I figured yeah. I can live on just a certain amount and make everybody happy because I've been an employee and an employer. There you go. Herb, thank you very much for the call. Andy in Wilmington, Delaware, it looks to me like you want to disagree on that point, Andy. Well, I I just want to tweak it a little bit, Tom. Um, First of all, no matter what the corporate tax rate uh, is, not one more job is going to be created unless there is an increased demand for the product or service of that company. So if you have a, a, a higher corporate tax rate, there's no if there's no need to reinvest um, other than to to I don't want to give the government that money. You might be able to invest in equipment or invest in in say property or build a new building or something like that. But but it doesn't make sense for the individual business owner to invest in human beings or anything. Well, there's a there's supply side argument on the other side of that, Andy, and that is that if you invest in a new product, you develop a whole brand new product line that you will find, you know, like when Apple came out with the iPhone, you know, when Steve Jobs said, okay, we're not just making computers anymore, we're making iPhones. And, and that product creates a certain amount of demand. Okay, so R&D does make increase in, in investment in R&D. That's what you facilitate by increasing uh, exactly. uh, corporate tax rates. And not just R&D, R&D, and then once you've developed the product, manufacturing it, marketing it, bringing it to market, distributing it, selling it. Okay. All those the things are tax deductible activities. Effect, the immediate effect, Tom, of, uh, of, of increasing that rate will, will be realized down the line. It'll mm-hmm. take a couple of years of those reinvestments I agree. to realize maybe some increased employment opportunities. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree. But what baffles me, Andy, is why 
people who know. I mean, you know, these people in politics and, and economists, they know that from the 1940s until I think 85, 86, the top corporate income tax rate was 50% in the United States throughout that period. And that was the period of greatest growth in both uh, business and wages in the history of America. And then Reagan dropped it down to 35% and growth started slowing down a little bit. And then Trump drops it down to 21% and growth goes through the floor. Now, that may have had something to do with COVID. I'll give you that. But, you know, he did it three three years ago. And uh, it, it just, you know, I... I how can they not look at these numbers and say, "Oh my God, it'll be a, it'll be a business holocaust if we if we if we raise the corporate tax rate to 28 percent when it's been 35 percent since since the 80s and it was 50 percent since the 40s?" So I can answer that, Tom, and that is your differentiation is long-term planning as opposed to the short, quick buck. Yes, and knowing that the tax rate is you know, where it is and it's fairly high and it's going to stay there will cause companies to do that long-term planning and invest in R&D and new development. Yeah, got it. Andy, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. From Andy to Andy, this Andy in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Andy, what's up? How's it going, Tom? Good. What I was thinking was what your initial debater was saying is a complete misnomer, but if we're going to talk about corporate taxes, let's meet them halfway. Let's go ahead and lower the tax rate. It's 21%. That's fine. Let's cut it cut it to 15. Then what we do is we, instead of giving them business expenses, 100% tax deduct deduction, we cut that to 50 so that they actually have skin in the game for running their business. You also stated with the previous gentleman that 100% of wages were tax deductible. That's incorrect. Only 80% is tax deductible. The 100% that is tax deductible is if you use temporary employees, because then it's considered hmm. a service. Thank you for the correction. I was unaware of that. I mean, no, that's okay. I, and we I'm could also sure. we could also too incentivize employment. We could raise the employment to ninety percent. But we yeah, can't or, or take it to hundred percent as taxpayers. As taxpayers, if we constantly we, we support business all the way through, and then they act like we don't do anything for them, and they did it all themselves. Yeah, and then they get, try I'm, I'm get baffled though by your Andy. I you know, I guess I'll have to talk to our tax guy. But as far as I know, we deduct our wages 100. percent Are there different okay, well, rules for unless, big businesses? Unless that change, unless that changed under uh, Trump's uh, tax code, hmm. his, his tax breaks that he put through. Prior to that, it was 80 percent of of wages that you pay to your employees was 80% of it was a tax deduction. Okay. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that. <laughs> but I, Andy, haven't thank done, you very I haven't much. actually done taxes for a while, so like four or okay. five years. So. Yeah, no, it's all good. I appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Uh, George in Los Angeles. Hey, George, you want to talk about guns? Yes, Mr. Hartman. I, thought I took you up on your offer to jump in there. I just wanted to say real fast, I, I don't have a gripe with, with really you know common sense gun control. I don't have a problem with that. My, my issue is this, Tom, and that's I, I'm afraid we're heading towards a slippery slope of demonizing inanimate objects as if they're evil in and of themselves. When these things defend the gentle from the cruel, the weak from the strong, and it's foolish. To be, you don't disarm in the face of evil. That's a dangerous. So world. uranium or plutonium is an inanimate object, but it will kill you. 
there are some inanimate objects. There's a lot of inanimate objects that we ban. We, uh, well, in the realm of guns, we we ban fully automatic weapons. We ban cannons. We ban surface-to-air missiles. I mean, there's there's all kinds of weapons that you cannot own in the United States, and they're inanimate objects. I, I, I think you're your your argument, okay, George, okay, is okay. kind of yeah, specious. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, radium and guns, that's apples and oranges, you know, uh, but like... Well, that's why, I, that's why I changed my argument to guns, you know, I, and I just gave you an example. You can't own a shot, sawed-off shotgun. Again, I don't mean you're having, you know, a rocket or a machine gun. I'm just saying that... Uh, by the way, I just got from reading the definitive book on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Somebody called and criticized me the next day. Uh, from the last time I was on, I'm, I actually read relentlessly on the Holocaust. Bear Mark, B-E-R Mark, Bear Mark, the definitive scholar on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, 1958, I believe, was written. It was actually much more involved than I, than I had realized. The point that they made, the actual fighters in Warsaw, was that the moral thing it did for the Jews, yeah, they finally were all killed, but all the other uprisings, nothing else happened until what they did what they did. And also just the sense of human dignity and that life, life is worth fighting for. You don't let little children. Yeah, George, if you're trying to make the fighting. argument that if our government ever turns into a Nazi government, the only defense against that is going to be for all of us to be armed. I'm not buying it. And and, uh, you know, and I don't see where it has. It, I'm just not buying it. Uh, and and uh, beyond that, the, the Nazis seem to be the one who have the most weapons right now, not the people who are anti fascist but it's the fascists so you know <laughs> i'm not getting it george oh, yeah but i'm no, sorry okay but again what, I'm do not you, buying what do you do when little children what do you do little children are being hauled off to us which you just stand there and twiddle your thumbs and you don't them? let it get that far when you see that your president is is talking like a fascist you vote him the hell out which is exactly I, what we did last year i agree with you we got we got him out and and you know I mean you're you're never you know no matter how well armed you are George you're never going to be able to take on the U.S. Army so what we need to do is make sure that the guy who ha- is the commander in chief of the U.S. Army is not a fascist we had a fascist for four years he nearly changed America into a fascist government and and no guns would have stopped that and no guns would have, I mean it's George I got to run I'm sorry guns taxes. <laughs> Uh, Nothing like a little hot topic. Uh, And we had another mass shooting. It's incredible. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman program, the true people's media. George in Portland. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Charles's argument, um, I, I missed a part of it, so forgive me if he explained this, but his main argument seems to be that the, the burden of the corporate tax hike would go to labor. Did he explain That's why that and how that would happen? No, I'm assuming what he meant. Well, actually, no, he, he never explained that. I, I thought where he was going to go with that was that basically corporate taxes would be passed along to consumers and consumers are also laborers, you know, or some, some sort of circular logic like that. But I'm, I'm not sure he ever explained it the, in a way that I understood, George. That's an important point because that was his primary argument there, you know. Um, yeah. It, 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 there, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I don't get it either. And I should, I probably should have drilled down a little more on that. That's an excellent point, George. Thank you. You know, you don't bat 1,000. Rick in Great Falls, Montana. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind today? Well, it appears to me that it doesn't make much difference whether the corporate tax rate is 5% or 50%. They're going to get the same return on their investment. All they're going to do is, is, is take that tax and add it on to the consumer. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, that, that assumes that they're a monopoly and they are not in a competitive marketplace. And I'll give you that there are a few companies that fall into that category. But most companies have competitors. And if they just want to pass taxes along to their consumers, they're going to find themselves uncompetitive. And so instead, what they should do is lower their tax liability by investing in their employees or investing in their business. Absolutely, yeah. But just like the Koch brothers, they got $800 million a year to, to put into a campaign. They certainly don't want to pay their employees anymore. Yeah, well, sadly. I mean, you know, they're, I think that's, that's, that's kind of not quite a, a good example of business because what you have there is ideologues who are draining their business or their own personal wealth, for that matter, to fund, uh, you know, political campaigns and political activities. And, and that's going to happen regardless of what the corporate income tax rate is at. I mean, you've got Coca-Cola has come out and said, yeah, raise it to 28 percent. We're down with that. I'm pretty sure AT&T was another company that said that. I, I may be wrong, but there, there, there were several companies now that are on the record as supporting this tax increase. FedEx might have been one of them. I'd have to go back and look. But there's several companies that are like, yes, we desperately need infrastructure in the United States. You know, raise the corporate tax rate and pay for the infrastructure. That will, by the way, stimulate more business activity, just like the Eisenhower Highway System did. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Okay. Yep, Rick, thank you for the call. I mean, this is the, I think, fairly straightforward part of this and something I never even got into with Charles, is that the money from that tax increase, the two and a half, three trillion dollars that President Biden is proposing we raise in taxes, in corporate taxes, that that money is going to be used to rebuild our highways, our bridges, our airports, our rail systems, our broadband, you know, right across the country, all kinds of really cool stuff is going to happen as a result of this. And that's going to stimulate business activity, which is going to stimulate more tax collection, which is also going to, you know, grow the economy. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, Gary in Overland Park, Kansas. You are on the air, Gary. Yeah, Tom, I think your statement today about corporate taxes was great. I think that the multiplier effect will kick in as corporations start to hire steel workers to build factories. When those steel workers then get paid more, they go out and buy homes, they buy appliances, the people that make those appliances get jobs. It basically creates a snowball effect in terms of increasing the way the economy works. The second thing I'd point out is that when the average worker gets $100 extra, he'll spend $99 of that and probably save one, and that $99 will stimulate the economy. If you give $100 to a billionaire, he might spend $20 of it, and he'll take the remaining $80 and hoard it in an offshore account where it will be unproductive. So basically what you're doing by increasing that corporate tax rate is you are giving a shot of adrenaline to the economy totally unlike Sam, Governor Sam Brownback of Kansas, who claimed that, that giving billionaires tax breaks would give a, a shot of adrenaline to the economy, and instead it tanked the Kansas economy. So you That's are, right. You, are, you, guys, you, you guys were the test case for the company, because Brownback, who used to be a you know, Republican right-wing Tea Party senator, is now your governor, and, and he came in and said, okay, I'm, we're, he, in fact, he said it right out loud. He said, we're going to run a test of Reaganomics, of supply-side economics, right here in Kansas, and he radically cut taxes and said, this is going to increase revenue. And uh, you tell us what happened, Gary. Well, the, the, the economy tanked, the state government tanked, uh, there wasn't money for schools, um, it was just a disaster. The only people in Kansas who profited that were the Coke Industries people in Wichita. Um, yeah, yeah, who, who were probably a, largely responsible for Brownback's political career. I think so. I think so. Um, you know, in, in addition to the economic, if you're a spiritual person, there's even biblical support for all this. The love of money, the pathological desire to hoard money by billionaires is the root of all evil. Basically, um, they've used that money and that wealth to oppose fighting climate change. Uh, they've used that to avoid fighting the war against poverty. They've used that to uh, avoid dealing with uh, drug trafficking. Uh, there's just a whole host of reasons why they create problems for the economy when they hoard this money. And by having a high corporate tax rate, you bring it all back to the center issue of, of circulating money, which is the key to all this. Money is like, it's, it's the blood flow of the economy. If, if you put all your, your blood to the head and none to the legs, you're going to develop gangrene in the legs. And basically we're doing that with our economy. We're sending all the money to the top 1% at the head, and the legs that do all the work and support the body are being starved of money or starved of blood or the lifeblood, and they're developing gangrene, and you have huge pockets of poverty, drug abuse, violence. All of that can exist, but it's a matter of degree. It greatly increases when the concentration of wealth squeezes everyone, and people's problems just multiply. Brilliant, Gary. You should write a column about it. You said all of that so well and so clearly. Just brilliant. Gary, I got to run, but thank you so much for the call. Richard in Chicago. Hey, Richard, what's up? 
Well, about uh, we keep hearing if you own guns, it would have ended, it would have stopped the Nazis. Is is so right. uh, ridiculous. It's just, you know, it took us with millions of people under in the army five years, and plus the Allies about six or seven years with the Russians to defeat the Germans. I had relatives with massive armies. You're exactly right. Myself, even and even the small ones, uh, they were fighting. Uh, Jews fought. This idea they didn't, but if you killed one Nazi, they killed a hundred people in your town. Just this, this idea is just—it's just so baseless. And I wish people would examine it better. I, I don't know. It's a small point on what was being said, but I'm just—people um, yeah. just don't. I mean, it's just—it's a matter of faith nowadays in our country. It's just unbelievable. It is—it is the 2020 version or the 2021 version of uh, the only thing that'll stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, which was also a fantasy and has never been actually shown to, to exist in, in the real world outside of, you know, the occasional anecdote that, that is the exception that proves the rule. But yeah, I'm totally with you. Richard, excellent. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, I appreciate it. Ron in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hey, I, I had a, a thought on some of this that I wanted to see what you thought about. And it may have been discussed before and I've missed it. But with the corporate taxes or voting rights, you know, gun control, filibuster, whatever it is, there always seems to be one or two Democratic senators that are the obstacle to it. And whether it be Manchin or Cinema, I think mm-hmm. Joe Biden should aggressively put his efforts into D.C. statehood on the idea that we would likely get two more Democratic senators there. So then we would ultimately end up back at worst case scenario of 52-52 uh, split, even if Manchin and Cinema voted with the Republicans. And then mm-hmm. Harris would be the vote tiebreaker. Yeah, and there is an argument to be made that statehood, for D.C. at least, can be added you know, I'd like to add Puerto Rico too, but that's going to be a more complex process. But that it could be argued, and I'm guessing that the Democrats are arguing this right now with the Senate parliamentarian, that it should not be subject to the filibuster because it is a constitutional process. And the Constitution specifies that it's a simple majority or, or fails to specify that it requires a supermajority. And because it's a simple constitutional... Go ahead, Ron. But even if that can't do it through reconciliation, I think, you know, Manchin and Cinema or whoever would be on the Democratic side would be very hard pressed not to agree to go ahead and get rid of the filibuster, at least for D.C. statehood vote, because that would put them in a horrible situation to say we're not going to get rid of the filibuster because... And we don't think these people should have the well, right. Well, I'm not sure. I think that there's a, a large contingent of basically white racist voters in both Arizona and West Virginia who are probably opposed to D.C. statehood. And this is something that Fox News, you know, they'll, they'll talk about D.C. statehood and throw pictures of black people up on the screen. I'm not sure they could get around it. We'll see. Ron, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. The uh, subtitle is How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Venture Capitalists Suckered Millions Out of Their Homes and Demolished the American Dream. It's quite a subtitle. This is from Chapter 21, titled Triumph of the Homewreckers. Donald Trump took the oath of office on a chilly Friday morning delivering an inaugural address that promised an end to the corruption and impotence that had widened America's historic wealth gap. 
He understood that his victory had been propelled by harnessing the public's rage and envy at having been left behind in the economic recovery, and he promised that he would not forget it. Evoking FDR's famous forgotten man speech from 1932 that promised to prioritize the needs of, quote, the man at the bottom of the economic pyramid, Trump declared, quote, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Politicians had prospered, he said, but jobs had evaporated, factories closed. Quote, the establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little chance to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. This all changes, starting right here and right now, Trump proclaimed, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. This is your day. This is your celebration, end of quote. The moment, however, belonged not to the great mass of struggling Americans, but to the new president's most ardent supporters, flamboyant businessmen who profited off the pain of the housing bust and were now poised to steer the ship of state for at least the next four years. As Trump reached out his hand and swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, his close friend and inaugural committee chair, Tom Barack, stood behind him smiling in a blue scarf and black overcoat. Afterward, Barack and Trump embraced at the U.S. Capitol's inaugural platform. The homewreckers had arrived. Barack didn't take an official position in the Trump administration, reportedly turning down an offer to be White House Chief of Staff, Treasury Secretary, or Ambassador to Mexico. Roger Stone told me he could have had any position he wanted, but working for the government would have meant making a lot less money. I don't think he has the belly for public service, Stone observed. Other homewreckers had no such qualms. If they changed the rules of the game now, they could make more money later. Steve Mnuchin, by now dubbed the foreclosure king by his critics, was confirmed as Treasury Secretary. His top deputy at One West, uh, the, the bank, uh, Joseph Odding, became the nation's chief bank regulator, the comptroller of the currency. Wilbur Ross, the bankruptcy tycoon who bought Florida Bank's Florida's Bank United became the Commerce Secretary, charged with everything from negotiating trade deals to overseeing the U.S. Census. Steve Schwartzman, the chairman of Blackstone, became chair of the White House's Strategic and Policy Forum, a group of business leaders who were to meet regularly with Trump. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase was named vice chair. Though the group disbanded over the summer after Trump's statement that bigotry and violence on many sides were responsible for a white nationalist's killing a counter-protester in Charlottesville, Virginia, Schwartzman, along with Barack, is said to be among a small group of outsiders, including Sean Hannity, who are put directly through to the president rather than being routed through the normal communications channels. Schwartzman has flown on Air Force One. On February 12, 2017, less than a month into Trump's presidency, while the commander-in-chief was dining with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan at his Mar-a-Lago golf club, Schwartzman threw a massive 70th birthday bash at his Four Winds estate, barely a mile and a half away. This time, neither Donald nor Melania Trump could make it, but daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner did, along with Mnuchin, Ross, and a who's who of high finance and culture, from Henry Kravis, co-founder of the hostile takeover firm Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, to the fashion designer Donatella Versace. The party featured live camels, trapeze artists, fireworks, and a gondolier. Schwartzman's tennis courts were covered with Asian-themed staging. The man who'd hired Patti LaBelle to hang, sing Happy Birthday for his 60th was serenaded by Gwen Stefani on his 70th. After Happy Birthday, the peroxide pop star 
took a quick twirl with the birthday boy around a dance floor constructed inside a two-story tent where acrobats shimmied and jumped, the New York Times reported. Unlike a decade before when Schwartzman's glorious pre-bust bash sparked condemnation from sources as conservative as the Wall Street Journal, this time the festivities sparked very little blowback. In her story, Bloomberg reporter Amanda Gordon reveled in the comparison with Schwartz, Schwartzman's 60th. There were some differences, though, she wrote. Remember that beautiful fur coat on Melania Trump? It was New York in February on a weeknight. This time, no bundling required, with many folks golfing and swimming all day before a balmy night and fireworks alongside a full moon. Howard Marks, the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital, a vulture firm that had bought and flipped 3,000 foreclosures, told Gordon, quote, the world is an uncertain place. A lot of people are unhappy with a lot of other people. There are a lot of things that people are upset about. So it's nice to have an evening where everybody's happy, harmonious, and upbeat, end quote. There was a lot of celebrating to be had. In June, the gang got together for the marriage of Steve Mnuchin and his third wife, actress Louise Linton, almost two decades younger than him. Uh, and then it continues from there. The book is Home Records by Aaron Glantz. Hey, welcome back. Let's check in with our uh, trial lawyer, legal political commentator, and former prosecutor, Debbie Hines. Debbie, welcome back. What happened in the Chauvin trial? So Dr. Tom testified, and she's a forensic pathologist. She is not the pathologist who performed the George Floyd autopsy. But interesting enough, she, has, she is the person who trained Dr. Baker, who is the medical examiner that performed the autopsy. So she's obviously very well qualified. And I think that they had her on to just try to get the groundwork to eliminate some of the issues that they, you know, take the wind out of the sails of the defense because she sets forth very clearly and distinctly that none of these things that the defense is bringing up, you know, drugs, this, that, heart, all the other issues that they're bringing up had nothing to do with his death. That the reasons that he died had to do with his heart and lung stuff and that was the result of the subdural restraint and the neck on, and the knee on his neck. So she was very, very good in that regard. And she just checked off the boxes, you know, no fentanyl was the result, not the no COVID. This was the result of it. So I, I think she was really good. But one of the points that she made, Tom, which really helped me, she said she doesn't use, I always wondered why the medical examiner that performed the um, autopsy, Dr. Baker, did not say that the cause of death was due to asphyxiation. And she said that's not a term that she would use because she said that doesn't explain anything. So she gave the example of if someone hangs themselves, and that would be by asphyxiation. But she said she wouldn't use the term. She would say that they died as a result of the hanging. So she's just trying to be very clear to clear up that little problem that some people have in their minds about Dr. Baker's autopsy, because as you may recall, the independent autopsy that was performed by Floyd, Mr. Floyd's family did say that he died as a result of asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. So basically, it sounds, Debbie, like all these threads are coming together in just a very, very clear, vivid, and, and extraordinarily painful, frankly, explanation that Derek Chauvin cut off 
George Floyd's ability to breathe in several different ways, compressing his chest and with the knee on his neck and that loss of the ability to breathe. In fact, I had been assuming up until I'd heard this testimony that his carotid artery had been compressed and that it was cutting off the flow of blood to his brain or to half his brain anyway, and that that had something to do with it. But I, you know, I was obviously very wrong on that, that basically they just didn't let him breathe and then the horror of Chauvin sitting on him or standing on him with his knee for another three minutes after he was already dead. I can't imagine being in that courtroom. Mr. Floyd got such a gruesome and grueling death because his feet were on the ground. And so his full weight of his body weight on George Floyd, oh. as well as the additional 40 pounds of gear that he had on him. Right. He had lifted his foot off the pavement. So we still haven't heard the defense begin their argument, and I, I assume we still don't know when they're going to start. But based on the questions that are being asked on cross-examination by the defense witness, Mr. Nelson, are you seeing a defense emerging? The defense wants to say, well, if, and this is what they said, if you take out, you know, the police activity of Derek Chauvin and the knee on his neck, if you take that out, couldn't Mr. Floyd have died as a result of a heart attack? Couldn't he have died as a result of fentanyl in his system? Couldn't he have died as a result of meth in his system? Couldn't he have died as a result of blood clots? But that was a big takeout. So, you know, they're just trying to harp on what they can. They don't have that much to work with after the testimony by Dr. Dr. Tubin. I mean, the pulmonologist just laid everything out, gave the jury examples, gave them little examples that they could use themselves. But then the defense is not working with a lot, but you can always find any expert to say anything that you want them to say. And if and, you pay them, you can find them to say anything. So we're going to see a parade when the defense begins. We're going to see a parade of people rehashing these. Well, you know, he was a big, strong guy. He should have been able to resist that kind of pressure. And he was on drugs and quack, quack, quack. And I, I, don't you think that all of America, as well as the jury, is going to go, yeah, really? But again, remember, Tom, there can still be one person that can right. still be holding out for the officer or just scientifically thinking, well, I think they did raise a reasonable doubt, so I'm just not going to go along with it. And we just won't right. know that I'm guessing, until the jury comes back. Right. And I'm guessing during jury selection, the defense was looking for that one person. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they got them. Uh, Debbie Hines. Then, I am Debbie Hines. Can. Yeah, I agree. I am DebbieHines.com and also on Twitter. I am Debbie Hines. Debbie, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always thanks, great getting you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.